We have a ton going on on today's podcast, and thank you for subscribing, rate, and reviewing the Ryan Rosillo podcast on The Ringer. Today's lineup, I'm going to go off. I'm on one today. Oh, yeah. There's something I've been upset about, Kyle, and I need to get it off my chest, and it has to do with the NBA. Weekend, though, quick observation. Speaking of, we're going to talk with Chris Ryan, but the headliner, I don't want to do that to Chris Ryan. Maybe I shouldn't say it that way. The co-headliner, <laughs> John Anik from the UFC, UFC 244, getting ready for that one. I can't wait for this card, and I just want to talk to my buddy, who I've known for a long time and has been very close to the sport for a long time and just kind of do everything. We're not going to just talk about the card. We're not going to talk about fighters that you don't know about. We're going to talk about the whole thing, big picture, and sprinkle in some good stuff in there as well. Today's episode of the Ryan Rosillo Show is brought to you by State Farm. If you're fumbling with insurance, State Farm agents are here to help because with over 19,000 agents, they're local to you and available to help. Whether you connect in person, by phone, or through the State Farm mobile app, agents are here to help. So go with the one that has coverage and agents you can count on. State Farm, talk to an agent today. So this Jackie McMullen piece in ESPN about Kyrie Irving, really about the Nets. It's about Katie. It's about Kyrie. It's about the Nets. And this is what happens. The stuff gets aggregated, and it became – I woke up West Coast out here. I'm like, man, what did Kyrie Irving do? Did he kill a guy? Like, oh, he's moody with the Nets? Okay, because everybody was talking about it. You know, that's my routine now. I get up sometimes way too early, uh, unfortunately. Not a great sleeper. But 5 a.m., 6 a.m., whatever. And it's like I don't have to get up. I know everybody's like, oh, get up early. Well, if you don't have to, getting up that early kind of sucks. Uh, but it's not like I'm staying up that late. It's just whatever. All right. I don't think I was going to do a sleep pattern podcast, but my point is, is that I'll, I'll see these things and I think like, Oh my God, like what happened? What's going Oh, Kyrie. Like, what did he do? What happened for this? And this is just, these are the rules. You have this thing that's interesting and then it becomes the thing. You know, there's always this thing that I think is really annoying about gender disputes and some are very, very um, accurate. Some of the gender disputes are total bullshit where we as men are winning and females are losing. And then there's ones where like, if a wife does something and she's the wife of a famous athlete, then all of a sudden it'll say, well, um, just trying to pick somebody random Rodney hood's wife slated to host blah, 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 blah. And we're like, you know, she has a name. She hasn't, she's a person like, no, it's not the way it works. Like I saw an article the other day. It was like, Britney Steers, uh, Britney Steers, less famous. Britney Spears workout boyfriend says their workouts are awesome, you know? And you're like, okay, why do you think the play said Britney Spears boyfriend instead of his name, which I've already forgotten? Because it's fucking Britney Spears. That's what's going to get you to click on the article. The same way, I don't know what Rodney Hood's wife does, and I don't know if she's slated to host anything. But my point is, is that those are the rules. And what happens with articles is, well, let's talk about what Sean Marks said. Let's talk about Kenny Atkinson's not sleeping much the first two seasons. No, no, no. There's this thing that everybody knows about with Kyrie that he can be unpredictable to be nice. Um, we could call it moody. I don't really know. Um, he's just sort of all over the place. This was going on all the way back to Cleveland, and it was it was a just a bad deal in Boston, and he checked out on that team against the Milwaukee Bucks. I mean, go back and watch those games. Actually, don't. Spend your time doing something better 
But if you did watch it, you're like, oh, so this guy's just like done with it all. So they go to Brooklyn and they have the fresh start. And the fresh start started actually back in 2016 when it was the World Games. And it was Durant, it was DeAndre Jordan, and actually it was the Olympic team, excuse me. Um, And they all got together and they're like, you know what we should do? We should do like a LeBron friends team thing, just like LeBron did. And we'll do a super team. And then DeAndre Jordan was like, well, who are you guys going to get at center? And they're like, no, dude, we're going to get you. I'm like, oh, I'm in too? Awesome. DeAndre Jordan did have a great line in it, though, where he said, you know, we're getting together now. But uh, he said, Katie and I became friends when I was getting recruited to Texas. And I was like, are you going to stay? And Durant was like, yes. He goes, and I knew he was lying to me immediately. So I went to AM. And DeAndre Jordan, look, it all worked out. It worked out for everybody. So they all get together. And this story is really long, and it's really well done by Jack McMullen. There's a bunch of different things that are going on here. But the Kyrie part of it, where there was an incident in China where there was a team photo, and he didn't want to take his hat off, and then said, hey, Photoshop it out. And you're like, or you could just take your hat off. And then that kind of became everything. And one other addition in that Kyrie shows up and... You know, it's like, look, I, I don't want to wear this this health monitor. I don't want to wear this tracking device. I don't want to do it your way. I'm working with my own personal guys, my own training system, all this stuff. Like this stuff that the Nets do is really detailed. Like you wake up and there's already a plan for like, here's where massage is going to work out. Here's where we're going to have specific rehab to this slight injury that's lingering. Here's your shooting assignments. Here's all these different things. And Atkinson even admits, you know, this can be very regimented. It can be very college-ish, which isn't something veterans usually say. Guys in free agency don't say, you know what I want to do at like 31? I want to go to a team where we wake up early and do extra stuff all the time because that's going to be awesome. And I want to have to track every step I take and then report it to a guy so you can have all this extra data. Because I will think we'll look back at this this run in sports and maybe go, is there ever collecting too much data? Because Sam Hinkie did, straight up. Read some of those stories. If you have Nerlens Noel's warm-up shots from the baseline 12 feet out being tracked and thinking that data is going to lead to anything, let me know what your conclusions are. But I do think we're in this thing where it's like, man, data, information, oh my God. I'm like, man, maybe we didn't need everything. And we didn't need to count so many steps to the deli. So Kyrie and Kevin Durant decide it's on. And they get together. And this is what I found so great about the article. Obviously, these guys can do whatever we want. I think we'll all admit 10 years after LeBron going to Miami, we're a bit more numb to the idea of the NBA player calling his own shot. Right? I think we are. We're like, oh, okay, guys, move around more. That's just the way it is. It's the NBA patches analogy I will use too many times. Patches? No. Oh, yeah. That's right. There's still patches on the jerseys. Like, you just don't care about it the same way you did in the beginning. And this is more important than patches and players moving around. But the guys go to the Brooklyn Nets. But here are two things that I think are so comical about it. Is that Durant and Kyrie have both said, we like the culture. We like the system. We like what they run. They like... We like... They're not running anything when you guys show up there. All the stuff you saw with Dinwiddie and Russell and Lavert and Jared Allen and Joe Harris and Kurt's unexplainable playoff minutes. As soon as you show up, it no longer, that, that system you're praising no longer exists. Again, not a criticism, reality. I'll give you a criticism, though, because if you're Kyrie and you're saying, I just love their culture. The second you showed up, you shit on the culture. I can't take my hat off. 
fucking Kyrie Irving. You know? And it's like, I love the culture. I love this. I love that they do this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tracking stuff? No. I don't want to do it. Here's what it is. Here's all it is. And it's okay. I would have been, I would have bought Kyrie jerseys, home and away, third alternate, perhaps, if all those dudes said the same thing. Hey, we want to team up together. Okay, cool. Where do you want to go? Both LAs are taken. Chicago's not as cool as New York. And the Knicks stink. Let's go to Brooklyn. Done. Let's talk about fighting. That'll be next. But first, the Google Assistant is ready to help you get more done with just your voice in the car, at home, and everywhere you take your phone. Hey, Google, text Bill Simmons. I'm on my way. Sure, text Bill Simmons. A little help, hands-free. Just say, hey, Google, to get started. He is the voice of the UFC. He is the co-host with Kenny Florian, John Anik, the Anik and Florian podcast, and with UFC 244 coming up, a big pay-per-view event. A guy that has been, uh, as I was kind of kid, as as great to me as anybody. I could probably be better to him. Uh, he's just an awesome, awesome guy, and he's he's a good friend. It is John Anik. What's up, man? Great to be with you as always. How pissed would Bruce Buffer be if uh, he heard me get introduced as the voice of the UFC? Um, yeah, probably pretty pissed. I didn't, I didn't really think listening. of it that if way. He's listening. Is he? Is he the voice of the UFC? Is that how he's billed? He likes us to call him the veteran voice of the octagon. You know, sometimes there's only time to stay with the official decision. Here's buff. But, you know, I try to give him as much shine as possible. But, uh, hey, I'll take anything I can get. I'm the lead play-by-play guy. You want to call me the voice of the UFC, I, I will certainly take it. Right, but is the PA announcer the, the voice of the Boston <laughs> Red Sox, or is it or is it Joe Castiglione? Now he's really going to be pissed you're calling him a, a public address announcer. Um no, I think you bring up a great point. I think I'm going to confront him about it this weekend. <laughs> All right, let me know what the odds are for that one, and uh, maybe maybe I'll introduce yeah. both of you. The, the, by the way, zero disrespect to Bruce Buffer whatsoever. I just always thought it was the play-by-play guy was was considered the voice of. So how's that how's that going for you? Because if anybody who doesn't, I know you've told the story a million times, but for people that don't know. John and I worked together at the old 1510 The Zone days. He was an intern, and then he was sort of there. And then I would looked in one day, and he was my co-host. And I was <laughs> super prickly about it in the beginning because no one said anything to me. I like it was like, this is my afternoon show, I thought, with Pep. And um, Pep hates the fact that we've both become successful. He reminds us of it every few, every few months or so, which is, you know, look, he was the heart and soul of the show that we did it. But how has this 10-year run been for you? not only calling UFC, but transitioning out of Boston, transitioning out of ESPN, and really being part of the UFC thing now. Every weekend, your show, like, you are part of it, man, and I couldn't be prouder of you. Well, thank you, man. It's been crazy, right? I mean, there's not a lot of time to look up with no offseason. Oftentimes, I find myself wondering how heightened anticipation would be if the UFC would just lay out for four weeks, you know, take off the month of September when the NFL starts and all of a sudden do a show every October 1st, it would be absolutely bananas, but there's no time for that. You know, eight years to the day yesterday, actually, when I started and it sort of has aligned with me having three children. So I think my whole life just feels very chaotic and unbalanced at times. Uh, I think the nature of a UFC telecast is such that, seven hours on the air, 26 fighters a week. If you're doing four or five in a six-week stretch, the volume of fighters to learn, never mind show formatics, is just absurd and not 
at all like calling a football game with respect, of course, to the NFL guys that do 17 straight weeks. So it's been a grind. You know, I don't know how long I'll be able to do it physically with all the international travel, which I guess has waned a little bit over the last few years. But, uh, you know, I'm 40, 41 years old. I, I definitely feel it, you know, um, but this has certainly become a dream job for me. And uh, it's the seat I want. And, and at least for this weekend, I have it, you know. So are you still the you know, for everybody that talks about my prep work, I, I would put you up there with anybody I've ever worked with. Like, will you know off the top of your head, I'm not going to do this to you, but every single ranking of every weight class? No, I don't memorize the rankings. I mean, there's certain things that I think are probably more valuable to me than that. I did have, though, because you brought it up yesterday, I do fighter calls on Tuesday, and I asked the fighter if he was ranked. You know, I was like, are, you're not ranked, are you? And he's like, yeah, I'm number 12 in the world, mother, you know. Um, so I probably should have known that he had a number 12 next to his name, but there's just so much information and such tight windows to get these personal stories across. So that's a big part of of my focus. You know, a lot of these fighters are motivated by different things and I, it's crazy how much hardship and adversity the average UFC fighter has been through to get to this stage. Um, but you know, cram is an ugly word for play-by-play guys, right? They say, oh, he's cramming. He's not doing the work you know, enough in advance, but the nature of our sport and job is such that there is some cramming, you know, fight week is, is a little bit like hell week. And, uh, that's kind of just the nature of the beast. So when I looked at the rankings, cause I was doing this last night and, and I was looking at it today and, you know, there's an argument to be made because I think every sport's always trying to figure out some sort of way to cross over, right? The UFC fan is always going to be there. Need to figure out who those crossover guys are. So when you have Brock going in and out of the, the sport, Connor at his peak, Ronda Rousey, who, you know, I'm going to, that whole story is fascinating to me and I'm not going to be negative about it, but when it was positive, it was unbelievable. And yet I'll look at the depth of say, um, I'm trying to pick, I'm trying to pick a, a good, let me, uh, let me go welterweight depth. Okay. Like oh, yeah. Woodley, Covington, Masvidal's fight, and we're going to get to the 244 matchups here in a sec. Nate Diaz, who I still love, who's obviously going up against um, Masvidal in, in, the, in the main event. Till, I mean, Steven Thompson, who I thought in one of those, I don't know, was it the Woodley fight where I couldn't believe he even got out of some of those those chokes. And I yeah. look at this and be like, this, <laughs> I mean, Pettis and Till are 10 and 11. There's so much depth to some of these these divisions now that I don't know that I ever felt. And like sometimes I can, you know, I always say this, but like familiarity, don't confuse familiarity with depth. But I do think that there's insane depth in this sport, whereas others, especially outside people, are going, oh, you know, where are the stars? Where are the stars? Which I'm sure is something Dana wants, something that's good for business, what you all want. But it really is ignoring the fact that there's matchups every week where I go, oh, my God, I got to see these two guys fight each other. It's so true. And you pick the right division, right? Because you mentioned Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, two-time UFC welterweight title challenger. He's fighting the number 14th ranked guy in the world, who your audience probably hasn't heard of, Vicente Luque, who's only won six in a row and 10 of 11 at 170 pounds. And he's put almost everybody away along the way. So certainly the depth and just the, the, the average UFC fighter is just a lot better, obviously, than he was 10 years ago. But the truly elite guys, you know, the top 15, top 10 in certain divisions, are all world-class fighters who on any given Saturday night probably could beat the number three guy in the world. In terms of the superstars, it's always an interesting conversation and one that I think Dana White is dismissive of when people worry about who's the next superstar walking through the door, and his point just continuously gets made for him when a guy like Israel Adesanya emerges seemingly out of nowhere, even though he certainly didn't emerge out of nowhere, but 
You can argue right now Israel Adesanya, who is not on the roster in January of 2018, is the biggest superstar in mixed martial arts in the UFC, could be on the cover of the video game. I mean, the world is his oyster right now, and he was not on anyone's radar really two years ago. So I feel like we're in a pretty good spot, probably the best spot we've ever been in before in terms of of the massive talent. And uh, obviously a lot of it's going to be showcased at MSG here in a few days. So what's going on with um, the last style bender there? Adesanya, who you mentioned, who is a star, his his Gastelum fight I thought was incredible. Um, we can get to Kev- Kelvin a little bit later here, but you know Jones is always an interesting Twitter follow. You were early on this. I remember the first time I ever talked to you about John Jones. You're like, dude, this guy's unbelievable. And then you start watching it, and you're like, yep, I've gone to see his fights twice. I saw you with the last one that was in L.A., and I just was there because I wanted to see him fight again because I'm just that impressed with him. I met him a couple times. One time he was awesome. The second time he was like, yep, this is not the setting where we were going to say hi to each other. I was like, oh, okay, cool. I'll go fuck off in the corner. Um, the, the other time at ESPN, really nice to me. Couldn't have been friendlier. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's cool. Like, I, I just like making you laugh and making that joke. Yeah, but is, yeah. is this the kind of thing where, like, where do you look at Jones right now versus what may be his peak? He'd argue it's his peak now. And are we going to look at guys, you know, jumping up a class like Adesanya who says, you know, I'm coming for you? It's interesting to think about what John Jones's goals are right now, because for a while there, he was tracking like a guy who wanted to fight four times a year and truly be a 20-time UFC champion. He's still the best fighter that I've ever seen, skill for skill, no doubt about it. And we still probably haven't seen 60% of what he can actually do. I don't know right now if his appetite is for the massive fights or if it is to continue to defend the light heavyweight belt against guys like Jan Wojovic and Dominic Reyes, who maybe aren't going to ring true with, with a lot of mainstream sports fans, at least in the United States. Um, the Adesanya fight is certainly there for John if he wants it. I don't think it's a fight that's going to happen anytime soon. But, you know, our, our former boss, Lorenzo Fertitta, would always talk about striking while the iron is hot. And if Adesanya loses a fight, obviously there's some steam lost off of that John Jones matchup. And at 185 pounds, you're going to see a guy this weekend in Kelvin Gastelum who gave him a fight of the year back in April, who in a rematch has a great chance to beat Adesanya. So as good as he has been, 7-0 in the UFC, 18-0 overall, I'm not sure size-wise he's ready for John Jones right now. There's still plenty of middleweight challenges uh, that I think he needs to tackle first. The Gastelum fight, I thought I hustled Cowherd. He and I went to his uh, private club, Ooh. the 900 club down there in Manhattan Beach, and we got together for a couple uh Coors Lights and I was like let's bet on this and he was like all right I love it you know so I go let's bet and I go I'll take um I go I'll take I'll take Kelvin for a hundred bucks and he then like he sees him come out and then he sees Adesanya come out he's like oh my god you're an idiot (laughs) and I'm like yes I'm like I've got him I've got him and then I thought Kelvin's gonna win the fight a bunch of different times and then at the end and then you know because you just look at him coming out so he's your favorite fighter right now Gastelum I mean, favorite fighter to watch, you know, consistently because he does prioritize putting on a show and yet he is world-class. I mean, to my point earlier, he's the true definition for me of on any given Saturday night, he can be the world champion and obviously came very close to becoming the interim champion against Israel Adesanya. Uh, The desire has started to catch up with just the natural gifts. And that's obviously a scary proposition for the rest of this division. You know, he's a former welterweight, uh, well-documented issues cutting down to 170 pounds. At one point, Gaslam fought Tyron Woodley, and he weighed like 183. Max was 171. So Dana White sort of forced the issue. He moved up to middleweight where he's been wildly successful. 
And he's fighting another guy in Darren Phil, who is now moving up to the UFC's middleweight division, who hits like a truck, kicks like a mule, uh, and is very much excited to, to doubt a lot of naysayers that he has in this Gaslam matchup this weekend. So uh, our middleweight division has never been stronger with respect to the great Anderson Silva, and obviously that fight should be a good showcase for it here uh, in the co-main event coming up Saturday. So you're not even afraid to say that somebody's your favorite fighter to watch, knowing that you're calling that fight. Like the Darren Till crew, well, like if you I mean, did that, and later today, you know, maybe I'll drop a Darren Till on you. But I've said to KG recently, and that's why I said to you off the air. I've said to him to his face recently. I can't think of a fighter who I have more fun watching do his job than you. And I said it to him again yesterday. You know, oh man, I'm just getting so hyped up just sitting here. Um, oh, dude, you and me both. Okay. Let's do this. Let's do this. Give me the, not the bullshit interview thing. Do the guy, we've known each other for a decade and a half. What's it like working for this thing? What's it like working for Dana? Like, give me the story that either it's setting the record straight on what it's really like or letting us, you know, those of us on the outside understand what it's like. It's this traveling circus, this rock star crew of guys and personalities yeah. where it's alphas everywhere. What the fuck is it like, man? It's crazy, right? And uh, I don't even want to think about what, well, maybe I do want to think about what it would have been like for me as a single guy on the road. <laughs> I mean, the nature of my job is such that I'm very much a, a boy scout of America when I'm on the road because there's so much damn work to do. And if I'm trying to be any sort of father at home, I really have to work during fight weeks. So it's less recreational for me. You know, it's hard working for Dana White, right? I mean, I have buffers, you know, uh, and normally I don't hear a whole lot from Dana, whether it's good or bad. Uh, but he's a hard guy to work for. You know, my contract certainly says that they can get rid of me at any time. And even though that might not be my reality and it sounds trite as hell, but I really do treat every show like it could be my last. It has to have maximum effort because he's a very demanding boss. And oftentimes, you know, we're being judged on every single utterance over seven hours by some very demanding men and women. So, uh, I take it very seriously, maybe too seriously at times, but, uh, you know, I, it's gotten me, I guess, here, so I just try to stick to it. But, dude, the, the lifestyle is crazy. I outlined some of it off the top. I don't know how these people who have been doing it for 20 years are still standing up, you know? I mean, it is intense. There's no doubt about it. Is it that Dana's intense? Because, like, whatever it is with Dana, he gets it. I watched the Chuck and Tito 30 for 30, which I thought was amazing. I mean, you know, that was that was bringing it back to, like, when I thought the, the 30 for 30s in the beginning were incredible, and that felt incredible yeah. again. And, you know, yeah. they go up to Big Bear and Chuck, you know, I was always much more of a Chuck guy than a Tito guy, but I started to have more sympathy for Tito after learning about, you know, you grow up in a tough childhood, man, you know, home's supposed to be sure. a place that's safe and it's not. And you start to understand Tito a little bit more. And even Chuck was like, dude, you know, whatever, like, why can't we just fight? And then Dana's like, Tito's an idiot. He's a dumb person. I don't <laughs> like him. And I'm thinking like, this is, can you imagine Adam Silver saying, you know what? This Steph guy's soft as shit. <laughs> Like, it's just such a different <laughs> right, element. Right. And maybe it's the fighting game, but it's just so different. So I have a ton of respect for Dana. I like Dana. I don't think he gives two shits about what I have to say. I've talked to him a million times. But part of me is like, yeah, I bet it is tough. But the other part of me is like, in a way, I kind of love it, although I don't have to work for him. So, Well, I've even said to my direct boss, you know, maybe it's a performance enhancer, that type of pressure, whether it's put on by them or if I put it on myself. Uh, but he still handles so much when it comes to this live production. And even if 10 years from now or however many years from now, not working for the UFC, I will still 
promote his greatness and his all-time status as just an amazing intellectual promoter who, who doesn't get enough credit for his overall IQ and his ability to understand that actually a BMF championship for the baddest motherfucker this weekend at Madison Square Garden actually makes sense. And it has resonated with fans to to a significant extent when, when certainly at first when I heard it, I was like, what's going on? You know, how's the, how's the UFC welterweight champion feel about a BMF belt in his division? <laughs> and obviously uh, it, it works, you know, because we're trending in a very positive way, obviously in terms of the pay-per-view this weekend. Yeah, just to understand, so it's the baddest motherfucker belt that you just get and The Rock is presenting it this weekend too because that was tough. Like me yeah. researching for all this different stuff and I ended up going through all this different stuff. I'm like, it, it, it's just funny how it works. Like UFC, you type it in this week, it's all stories about the fucking rock. And I like the rock. Yeah, just- he will uh, He will be donning the winner uh, with the BMF belt. Obviously, Jorge Masvidal is a Miami guy, as is the rock. So there's an obvious connection there if, if Jorge Masvidal is able to win it. But yeah, I mean, what, from what I've heard and been told, it's a $50,000 belt. It's not a belt that's going to be defended in the UFC, but it's, it's a historic fight. And uh very interested. Obviously, every time Nate Diaz fights, it's just a massive deal for all of us inside the sport uh, and beyond. So I'm just excited to see, you know, how staying active is going to work out for uh, for one of the biggest stars in the game. More with John Anik here in a second. But all right, guys, big news. NFL superstar J.J. Watt wants to change your life. And no, he's not doing a TED Talk or writing a self-help book. This is way better. To support a great cause, J.J. Watt has teamed up with Omaze to offer you the chance to win a brand new Ford Raptor. That's actually pretty sick. With taxes and shipping included, even better, and $100,000 to put toward a house down payment or to help pay off your mortgage. And if that's not enough, he's even going to fly you and a friend to Houston to meet up with him. This is unbelievable, by the way, as I'm reading this. For your chance to win, go to omaze.com forward slash Russillo, R-U-S-S-I-L-L-O, and enter now. That's omaze, O-M-A-Z-E dot com forward slash Russillo, R-U-S-S-I-L-L-O, two S's, two L's, and a special bonus, do this. Enter the promo code Rosillo 150 and you'll score 150 free entries. That's promo code Rosillo 150 Best of all, every donation supports the J.J. Watt, that's the Justin J. Watt Foundation, and their work to empower and inspire children through sport. Once again, that's omaze.com forward slash Rosillo, promo code Rosillo 150 If you're listening to that, not doing it, what's Crazy. wrong with you? Just Crazy. Go do it. Done. 150 free entries from your boy. Okay, Masvidal, researching him again this week, and I know he's 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 picked up momentum. I mean, his his knee against Askren is insane. Um, the fight against Darren Till is, is who I still have a lot of respect for. I just always I'm with you all the time. Like the guy's just tough. Like if you win, that's a big time win against that guy. And then I was watching his backyard fights with Ray Kimbo's protege. I'm like, oh, that's right. That's that's who Masvidal was. So. Why yeah. Why is this happening now with Jorge Masvidal in this Diaz fight? I mean, I know it's a headliner. I know we're talking a major market here, but it, it feels like it's building. Is he a better fighter? Is he just on a streak? Or is this just all sort of happening at the right time for him? Because I feel like I'm hearing about yeah. him more in the last couple of years than ever before. Yeah, I mean, you set up the backstory pretty well. He is definitely Jorge Masvidal version 2.0. He is definitely a better fighter. I think four of his six UFC losses have been by split decision, and it's amazing to think what his career trajectory could have been at 155 pounds, had a couple of those high-level fights and matchups gone his way. But he has 
prioritize finishing. And that's what I think makes five rounds, 25 minutes so interesting this weekend against somebody as durable as Nate Diaz. He's definitely a different fighter, but this has been a huge year for him. I'll try to set it up quickly, but were it not for Israel Adesanya, Masvidal is the go-away winner for 2019 Fighter of the Year. I mean, you saw what he did to Darren Till. Then there was the three-piece and a soda episode backstage where he got confronted by Leon Edwards, another fighter who had won that night, and he promptly threw hands at him backstage. Then he produces the fastest knockout in UFC history in five seconds. I feel like if Miami, Florida, and this market where I live could get behind him the way like Cleveland, Ohio has supported our heavyweight champion, Stipe Miocic, that I would mention Masvidal in the class of an APS as one of the biggest superstars in the sport. And I think what he is able to do this weekend will go a long way in determining if he can actually like sell out the American Airlines arena. I don't know if he can do that. We haven't been to Miami in ages, but it's all in front of Masvidal. His focus still is the undisputed title. And obviously if he wins this weekend, he's got a great chance to, to compete for that. But I just couldn't be happier for the guy, dude. I mean, I've, I've known him almost as long as I've known you. One of the first fights I ever called was his in 2009. And uh, he's just been through it all. I mean, if, if anyone's richly deserving of this opportunity and this belt and this platform, uh, it's game bread for sure. But he's going up against a guy I know you love in Nate Diaz. And oh. I have grown to love him in a way that's unlike anything else. Now, when he fought Connor, I, I rooted for Connor because I just, I enjoy Connor. And we'll get to him in a second. But Nate, in classic Nate fashion, you know, the Pettis fight, he comes out there. I was at a party watching it. I bet on Diaz. Everybody's looking at Pettis going, I'll take all your money. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm just <laughs> betting I'm just betting on Nate Diaz because I don't think he feels punches the same way normal humans do. I don't think he has to be in shape yeah. the same way other people do. I don't know that you know what's coming at you, except that his his shutdown is not where everybody else's is. And then, of course, he almost quits this fight and calls out every single person he could think of, and then it's still on. So... Where is Nate Diaz now and trying to figure this guy out, which I think is probably a stupid question? Well, I think it's a good question. I sort of am excited to see what he can do with a relatively quick turnaround, right? I mean, he ended a three-year layoff, obviously, when he fought Showtime Pettis. Now he's in an active competition schedule, which in theory uh, should produce a great result because the August result was was largely very productive. I mean, he obviously absorbed some damage to that right eye and I think in a five-round fight against Jorge Masvidal, you certainly got to be careful that a cut doesn't become a major factor in this fight. Um, but you don't, under any circumstance, in my opinion, walk up to a window and bet against Nate Diaz, right? Because of his ability to absorb punishment, he even ate a big knee up the gut from Pettis early on, just walks right through it. Uh, there's uh, a mental and physical toughness to these guys that I just can't relate to. And when you parlay that with their martial arts acumen. I mean, these are true martial artists, all the little nuances and the clinch and just the boxing chops and everything else. The grappling is second nature to these guys. You know, um, there's so much to like about these Diaz brothers. And, uh, I actually think it stands to reason that Nate would be better having competed, you know, three months ago than he was back in August. Connor's 31. Now we know all the headlines have been negative. I'm not going to get into it because I don't know what's real and what isn't at this point. Um, the Habib, Fight. I just went wicked ethnic pronunciation right there. That was amazing. That was like Hebrew right there. Yeah, I don't even know why I did that. I don't wasn't trying to impress <laughs> you. That would be something you would do. Yeah. You would have done yeah. that in like oh four. So annoying doing it. Right. I, I sound so annoying every time I say. I would have given you a twenty nine, twenty eight year old Rosillo eye roll if we were in the studio in the zone. If you just, I, I want to, I almost want to erase that um, from the podcast, but I did it, <laughs> and I, I'm not going to allow myself. So, okay, so that fight was 
just over a year ago. And then right. his other fight before that was three years ago against Eddie Alvarez. Right. And then we know he had the Mayweather thing, which was August of um, 17. And so whenever I hear people knock McGregor, I'll be like, hey, how about you win something? You're like, well, first of all, what he did against Mayweather, I think is a win. Because if you're going to talk, and I know who Mayweather is or isn't as a fighter, but when I watch those two guys box, I go, this is actually not going even remotely as horrible as everybody thought it would go. Right. Um, sure. So in a way, I'm not giving him a W, but anybody who want to throw some L on McGregor, getting a huge check out of that, not embarrassing himself against Mayweather. I don't know. You just, you don't like Connor. And I understand why people don't like him. And then he loses to, I don't even want to say his name again, um, in a submission yeah. just because we knew, look, he's, he's a different class of fighter. The kid was fighting bears, but where are we right now with Connor? Where, where does this story go? A lot of these guys don't have happy endings. I'm afraid it's heading down that road, but I refuse to believe that this guy can't win a fight again at 31 in the octagon. Oh, I think he can win. I think there are certainly favorable matchups for him in the lightweight division's top 10. You know, I think you got to be real careful fighting, you know, the human highlight reel, Justin Gaethje. You know, I think Donald Cerrone might be a more palpable fight for, for Conor McGregor. And maybe there will be some strategy as far as, the matchmaking from a McGregor standpoint, because he does need a win, right? I mean, I guess he doesn't really need a win, but I think he really cares about his mixed martial arts legacy. And and the win over Nate Diaz over five rounds is obviously a huge feather in his cap, simultaneous two division champion first to do that, obviously. But I think it's hard for him right now in this 155 pound division that Khabib's the champion and the other guys in the top five just present real stylistic challenges for him. So when and he gets a title fight, I think you got to be real careful picking the opponent because there just aren't a lot of easy outs for him. But uh, I think January 18th, I'm hopeful it'll be Las Vegas. He will be back. And he'll be back because he cares about his UFC legacy. I don't think, I mean, there's a monetary component, of course, but I really think he wants to prove himself as a fighter. And uh, the only place to do that, obviously, is the UFC. Habib's just an awful matchup for him too, right? Like, I wanted to believe he could win that fight. But, you know, I remember seeing McGregor in Vegas for... Uh, what's wrong with me here? Why can't I remember his name? Um, he was he was the the wrestler. He got in there late. He was like a late substitution. Vegas show. Uh, Chad Mendez. Yeah, it was Chad Mendez. Yep. Right. So yeah, Men- Mendez had him at one point. You're like, oh my god, he's gonna lose right. this whole. Yeah. I mean, you felt like you were doing the broadcast from Dublin, and then oh was, my gosh, right? And Mendez was what? He's a California guy too, isn't he? Yeah. And, uh, and oh, dude, the Connor atmosphere is just nuts. And he fought Chad. His ACL was hanging by a thread. So, uh, yeah, there have been a lot of, obviously, Hall of Fame wins for Connor. I just, I do believe, and I was wrong about Ronda, right? I felt like Ronda wouldn't want to sit up, feet up in retirement, having said, you know, I never fought Cyborg. She'd be sick of people saying, dude, why didn't you ever fight Cyborg? And, of course, we've seen what's happened to Chris Cyborg. And credit to Ronda for fighting Amanda Nunes, who has gone on to be the greatest of all time. But I don't think Connor is going to enjoy, you know, feed up proper 12 whiskey as much if he doesn't beat a couple of these lightweights right now while he's in his prime. So um, clock is ticking, you know, January 18th. Let's go. Well said. Well said. Uh, Ray Longo minute with uh, with you and Florian. Uh, uh, I love it. I absolutely love it on the podcast. Again, the Anik and Florian podcast. Check it out. Subscribe, please, for my friend. So Ray is, uh, he's, I know, I don't want to say anything about Weidman because I know you're like, I'm a, I was a peak Rockhold. I'm still supportive of Luke Rockhold. I just was on the UFC site today and I noticed there's a couple of hoodies there, unfortunately on sale 
if you guys want to grab those. But I'm going to go pick ah, myself up a couple. Yeah. No, I'm going to pick up a couple Rockhold shirts and cut the sleeves off and start walking around. And then I'll DM him an you invite should. up. No, I'll DM him an invite up to Manhattan Beach again. And he'll be like, hey, bro, thanks for watching the fight and having me on the show. But you can fuck off. <laughs> like, we're not going to hang out. Um, <laughs> He's like, dude, you're not a, not a groomsman in my wedding. <laughs> All right. I don't want to even talk about Rock Hole because it's going to depress me. But so Ray Longo's <laughs> widest yeah. guy and and Chris hasn't had a great run of it. And I and I just I, this isn't even about him. He, Longo said something I thought was really interesting because you were talking about different fighters and one guy that was brought up. He was like, hey, he's one of the good guys. He's one of the few guys. And I went, wow, that's interesting. Does that mean that the sport is. Does it have less good guys now? Was it better in the Chuck and Tito days? Was it better with Anderson Silva? Was it better with, you know, shit go back into the 90s? Or, you know, is that just older generations ripping younger people in the cyclical fashion that we've done since we could start talking to each other? Um, how do you feel about just when you meet fighters now and you meet these guys? Like people could say today's NBA players, more self-entitled, more about his brand, you know, tougher to even listen to. And I can understand those arguments, but I'm not sure if every, any of this stuff is accurate. Yeah, I mean, I think Ray is speaking a little bit to an older generation. Certainly we're in an era where if you want to fight and you use your post-fight interview as a platform to, to call out a next opponent, there's a better chance of you getting that fight than if you just, toe the respectful martial artist company line, right? So we are in an era where I think flamboyance and being a little bit boisterous and having a personality is richly rewarded. And it doesn't really dovetail with martial arts at its core, which is respectful and bowing and sportsmanlike and everything else. But dude, I mean, I'm immersed in this roster 24-7, 365, much more so than my man, Ray Longo, whom I love. And I can tell you, uh, it's never been as good as it is right now. I mean, these athletes are just amazing to deal with. The, the stories that they sit down and tell us, the adversity, whether it comes to visas or getting to the United States, you know, on a makeshift boat that is tires. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Give me the guy that his story, you were like, you're going to be kidding me. The one that will be the first one that you'll always think of. So we have a fighter who his family is basically in Nigeria and he and his younger siblings were able to get out but his older siblings were still back there uh, because they weren't able to get visas. So this dude literally won a UFC performance bonus and filled his car with goods that they could sell in a store and ship the entire car against his coach's wishes, by the way, because they want him to invest and save his money a little bit. Um, but this dude, his whole focus is like winning fights to try to bring his family to the United States of America, his older siblings. You know, he helps them set up a storefront in Nigeria um, to try to sort of make ends meet. And I think they're just, the stories like that are just so present in our sport. You know, some dude is like, I got 17 children, you know, and trying to support them lot. all somehow, some way. And yeah, it's a lot. I mean, it, you know, it's probably three or four different moms. It's crazy, man. It really is. But I think more so in our sport, because these guys truly are fighters and maybe this was their outlet, uh, you know, um, it, it's been, a, it's been a powerful thing for me to experience. And I would stand by these athletes every step of the way, uh, in terms of how they approach us and our staff and, and everything else. Yeah, and I don't want to put words into Longo's mouth, uh, his mouth on that at all. It just, you know, it could have been very much just a phrase that you use. Hey, he's one of the good guys or, you know, we need more good guys or one of the, few yeah, good guys. I think he gets right. a little bit ornery with it. And I certainly think he goes back with a few guys like Nate Diaz, who he knows has always done things the right way. And, uh, 
he's got Ray Long, you know, he's New York, right? He's been on our show since episode one. He's got a little chip on his shoulder and uh, he, he certainly maximizes the platform for sure. I love the guy. I love I I was immediately like, oh man, I'm, I'm back in because I just was so excited <laughs> about this card. All right. You ready for rapid fire before we let you go? It's five questions. Let's fucking do it. In honor of Craig Kilborn, but we don't always ask five. So that's, that's okay. our little twist on it. Okay. Um, everyone hates Greg Hardy. True or false? False. Because I don't oh. hate him. He's treated our staff like gold. But, I mean, do the majority of people dislike him strongly? True. Did you get crushed because you said the guy can't catch a break when he got disqualified because of the inhaler? I get crushed every time I support him. I can't even comment on his Instagram photo, you know, without getting absolutely mauled by USC fans. Okay. Um, give me two fighters who absolutely hate each other for real. Well, you know, Justin Gaethje and Paul Felder, there's definite lightweight animosity there. I don't think Gaethje's going to give Paul the fight. Certainly what we had in Boston 12 days ago with Yair Rodriguez and Jeremy Stevens, that was raw pre-fight emotion between two guys that I haven't seen in some time. Uh, so those are two for you. Who most looks like a creative character on the UFC video game? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Nico Price. I don't know. That's Sousa. Sousa is the so answer. For that one. We were looking for Sousa. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> um, Brian Stan versus Thor. Oh, I mean, you got to bet on the greatest living American, Brian Stan. I don't know how he gets it done, but he'll, he'll find a way, you know? He only sleeps four hours. He only needs four. Brian Stan, the greatest living American. Did you come up with that nickname for him? Yeah, I mean, I think my twin brother had a piece in it because he said that John Anderson, I believe, on SportsCenter used to refer to Tom Brady as the greatest living American, and Tom never served our country. Like, no. let's just start there. Yeah, with right. Tom's lack of service, you cannot be the greatest living American having not served the country. So my brother said it to me. I dropped it in passing one time, and 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 it kind of stuck. We got to get shirts made. Would Stan sign off of those if I were involved, or would that be a hard no? Um, I, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I freaking love the guy. 100% he would sign off. If you were the conduit through which they were getting made, I, I, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like we, need, we, need a, we need to do a Stan. I still, have, I still have tickets for him if he needs a college football game. Okay. Um, <laughs> let me see here. I got a, I got a couple more. Um, who's the single toughest guy you've been around? Like it doesn't necessarily mean his record, his legacy, his belt, or all those different things. Who do you think of of doing it? I'm not even talking active right now. It could be somebody active right now, but the alley, I want this guy. Man, well, Nate Diaz is fighting this weekend, so I won't say Nate or Kelvin Gastelum, who is literally back alley choice number one, because he is the consummate guy who cannot have a great training camp and be a little bit overweight and still just kick your ass. But dude, it's Justin Gaethje. Like if your audience does not know who Justin Gaethje is, I, I hope when they're done listening, they will just go Google Justin Gaethje. And you know, you probably go down a rabbit hole. That'll take you a couple hours. He is a monster. He wants to go to those dark places, just like Tony Ferguson. There's so many guys I could answer this question with, but, but Gaethje won and Ferguson right there behind him, I guess. Okay. Wow. That is some love for, uh, Oh, for thirty years, I've seen him fight. I'm trying to think who I who I saw him fight against most recently, but he's a total fucking maniac, bro. I'm he just beats Cerrone. Like if right? he fights yeah. Connor, dude, like I'd be too anxious to call the fight. You're gonna ask that? You're gonna call him sick on that one? Okay. <laughs> I um, mean, 
Three more. Three more. Because I know I, I want to let you go here. You get a family. Okay. Which fighter would I like the most to hang out with? And which fighter would, would I want to hang out with the least? So there's so many guys who I think you would really like hanging out with. You know, I love Calvin Cater because he is he's main eventing here in, in a couple weeks. He's the best fighter to ever come out of Boston, Massachusetts, skill for skill. And he's got a real chance to become UFC champion. I love talking to him. Who would you least like to talk to? I don't know. I mean, I think you'd enjoy Stephen Wonderboy Thompson's company. Um, I've met him. But eventually there's a... But yeah, I mean, eventually I think there's a, a depth to you, and I think you would want to go pretty deep with him. I don't know if he'd meet you there, you know? No, that's true, because when I did see him, and it was after the Woodley fight, and I felt like I wanted to compliment him, because I was so, you know how it is, like, those, you'll see a guy lose, and you end up liking him more after a loss than a win. Of course. And I think that's what this sport, what's so great and unique about this sport. I mean, you're not sitting there after Ohio State yeah. kills somebody watching the other team going, you know what, I really like Northwestern. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, two yeah. more. Best city, right now, you can go to any city to call a fight. I almost feel like Vegas isn't allowed to be eligible for here. I don't even know if that would be your pick. I know you lived in the area. But give me the city that you get most pumped up for, although I'm afraid you're not going to pick anything that's too far away because I know that your international travel thing, you're probably over at this point in your life. Well, at this point, when I'm done with this job, I will shred my passport and I will never leave the United States of America again. So as much as I have loved going to Australia 11 times and I would put Sydney and Melbourne up with any answer I would give you. It's just way too far, obnoxiously far. So that's not the answer. I'd probably say Nashville, Tennessee, although it's getting overpopulated, but that's where I called my first UFC fight, one of my favorite American cities. But you know, for me, I mean, all I like to do is, is eat, smoke a little weed and gamble. And uh, Las Vegas accomplishes a lot of those things for me. That's true. I'm, I, I feel like one of my great regrets is not going to, like, I want to go to Melbourne so bad. I want to check it all out. And I think I should have just paired it up with one of your fights. Maybe I'll still well, do that. I, no past tense. I mean, there's uh, Israel Adesanya is the undisputed UFC middleweight champion. There's definitely going to be opportunity uh, to get back to Australia, New Zealand. Um, well, Adesanya's next defense, I would think, would be in New Zealand. But uh, we go to Australia once a year, usually for a big pay-per-view. And uh, if you can stomach the flight, my man, you know, get one of those lay flats up front, swipe that con, and uh, we'd love to have you. <laughs> Okay. All right. Final one. Are you yeah. surprised that there's never been a fighter whose primary style is Tai Chi to ever win a belt? hundred percent. How has that not happened? I mean, 26 right. years into this thing, you know? It, man, I mean, you know, I don't get it. That's after yeah. me reading the Bruce yeah. Lee book. I, you know, the Christian McCaffrey, Bruce Lee connection, right, has made me want to go read Bruce Lee's books, you know? So. You know what? I know I'm, I've been bad about this. I'm going to send you the newest one right now as soon as we get done with this. I'm serious. I'm going to have it sent oh, right to your love house. You. Love you. Uh, you know, I feel the same way about you. So proud of you. And you're so good at this. And yeah, you are the voice of the UFC. UFC 244, check it out. Awesome card. Awesome card. And check out the Florian podcast with uh, John Eric as well. I know it's Anik and Florian, but you know what I'm saying. All right, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it very much. Okay, thanks to John Anik. Chris Ryan is going to make his Rosillo Pod debut. Before we do that, DAZN, fight fans, it's fight season on DAZN. This fall, you get a stacked lineup of the biggest fights featuring the biggest stars in boxing like Canelo Alvarez and Andy Ruiz Jr., only on DAZN. With a DAZN subscription, you can watch Canelo versus Kovalev on November 2nd. Canelo 
is moving up two weight classes to face Kovalev for the light heavyweight world title. Can he clinch yet another title with a new 175-pound weight class? And you also get the Ruiz versus Joshua rematch on December 7th after an unbelievable underdog win against Anthony Joshua. Andy Ruiz is determined to cement his place and title as the heavyweight champion of the world. Was it just a fluke, or does he have what it takes to beat Joshua a second time? I can't wait to watch that rematch, by the way. Because Ruiz, you know what we're going to say. Too many posts on Instagram. Mm. Hate to see it. Remember when Rory McIlroy got a girlfriend? Up next. McIlroy's hooking up more often than he used to. But how's his short game? Although, you know, if you're famous, I guess some would argue if you got a girlfriend, you'd be hooking up less. This podcast just got pretty adult. <laughs> Sorry to the kids in the backseat. Earmuffs. Um, or maybe they don't even understand it, and they're asking their dad to rewind it, and they're like, what? What's he talking about? Sorry, man. I, you know, <laughs> get that Mickey Mouse in the paycheck for 14 years, and you, you just start, start loosening up a bit. This is not only the best schedule in boxing history, but the best value, too. You get everything, every fight, original content, all live and on demand for one low price, and all you have to do is download the DAZN app to start watching. Exclusive home of Canelo Alvarez and Triple G. DAZN. Big fights. Any device. One price. Download the DAZN app or sign up at DAZN. D-A-Z-N dot com. DAZN. There's one undefeated team in the East. And they are Chris Ryan's Philadelphia 76ers. Chris Ryan of the Ringer. Little Sixers. Little Succession. How are you, sir? I'm so good, man. I'm good because I'm here. Not, not only because the Sixers are undefeated. I'm just so happy to be here with you. You're very, um, your whole thing about you. Are you, are you always this positive? Do you, do you go home and you, do you tear up dolls or no, something? No, I you, actually, you, I, I feel like I bring a pretty good energy to things, but like it's do. been a long time for, to be in the, the catbird seat for Philly for the Sixers like this. So it feels really good. I mean, on any given night, you just feel like if you lose, it's not the end of the world. You know what I mean? Like you, there's just like, you really feel like this is their conference to lose. It does feel that way. Yeah. And it, when we were doing the over-unders, you're like, well, you know, Milwaukee. And I was one of the, you know, of all the stuff I've gotten wrong, I was, I was still very pro-Toronto last year. And, you know, when they went down, I was like, I'm not, I'm not writing this team off or anything. But when you really started going kind of one through seven, one through eight, I go, why the hell would I pick anyone other than Philly? Yeah. yeah. And, that's, and yet, you know, what's funny is I'm watching that. I watched the Sixers-Celts. I watched the full Atlanta game because uh-huh. I was really keeping track of the rotations. Because I just want to know, I, I'm not doing a thing where I go, oh, I don't know about that. Because you know, right. I have all those things. And right. I'm writing them down. Be like, will this be a thing? Will this be a thing? Will this be a thing? And they're 3-0. 3-0 doesn't necessarily mean anything. But I'm I'm with you. So give me your long-term kind of blink of what you've seen in a week. Yeah, well, uh, a couple of things. One is, I don't know if you know this, but Al Horford just does the little things. <laughs> It's, it's all the things that don't count in the box. You already court. knew this stuff, but isn't it funny for a new city to learn, like, hey, you, I know you paid a lot for him, but understand, like, he's going to have four points I, in games, and th- it doesn't mean he sucks. There was some possession against Atlanta. I can't even remember what part of the game it was, but it was just, like, a little bit of, like, he just, the ball came off the rim, and it was just out of nowhere. Horford just, like, taps it up one more time just so someone else could get the offensive rebound. And I was like, I don't think I've ever seen that before. Like, I, I honestly felt like I was seeing a new kind of basketball be played where all these little hockey assists things happen on the court and they're all down to him also guys just exploding off of screens when they run into him uh, i also really for as much as it looks like he's shooting a bowling ball really like josh richardson as the the point of attack defender on the perimeter which is like kind of what we were supposed to have with jimmy 
we haven't really had since Covington in a lot of ways. And you can see what Covington's doing with Minnesota now and how important that that position is now. The guy who's like, I'm going to go attack the ball. Uh, and yeah, the Ben Simmons, I think Ben is actually taking a leap right now. That, that's Whoa, a, yeah. that might be the headline. Yeah, I don't give a shit about the three-point shooting. Like, I think that he is playing with a chip on his shoulder, and I think he is basically unstoppable in transition right now. He hasn't taken a three yet. No. Are you guys track? Is there a Twitter feed? Has Ben Simmons <laughs> Has taken been a shot three yet? yet? Yeah. No? All right. <laughs> so, defensively, they're so big. Yeah. And in that Atlanta game, they went without a field goal for, I think, 540. I'm I'm probably off by a few seconds here or there, but their only points were a couple free throws. And do you find it pleasant to watch so far? Who the Sixers? Offensively, no, yeah, not at all. And it's, Bill and it's I, it's choppy. It's like a lot of free throws. Yeah, Bill had a great text to me. He goes, "It's looked like the, every game they play on offense." And granted, this is three in, and it was I. I don't think he's going to care that I'm sharing. It's just a great line. It's what I don't care. <laughs> he was like, "It looks like they've all just met each other." Yeah, every game. Yeah. But it didn't matter. Their defense was so good. What I'm surprised by is I thought we would see some different staggered pairings. Right, you know, last more Embiid Simmons not playing together stuff. Yeah, and it's it's not any different. No, and it, and then I thought, okay, well then Horford and and Embiid will be split up more. And for that game, they weren't split up as much as I thought. So it really is kind of this closing thing, where and I'm not making too much out of it mm-hmm. after just the three games, but. I can't wait to see what the rotations look like, say, 20 games in to see if there's there's any change. And, you know, 3-0, it sounds cool and all, but I, I don't know. I, like, that's the part with them where I'm like, hey, you picked them to win the East. You think they're clearly the best in paper, but why are you still having these weird, like, moments with them offensively? But I would think Sixers fans would feel that way, Do you think too. it's because it goes against everything that we've been sort of looking for in basketball for the last few years is these, like, electric offenses, floor spacing, shooting, and this is, like, more like, a Lower East Side bar where you have to like squeeze past seven dudes and be like, I got an M still. <laughs> Holy shit. You know, you're so excited that you got your beer. And it's like, it, that's what the Sixers offense is like right now. That's a really good point. Like we're so <laughs> conditioned to be like, well, where are your shooters? Where are your shooters? Yeah. Like is Al Horford and no, uh, it's all to- Tobias. It right. is literally yeah. all Tobias Harris. And he's just going to be like, he is going to have nights where it doesn't matter. But so give me more of uh expand more on your Simmons thing, taking a next step. Cause I'll admit there was too many times this summer doing preview stuff where I'd be like, why is everyone just assuming he's a top 10 player? I, I don't necessarily top 10 know everywhere. that. Yeah, yeah. But I think that the one thing we saw over the, the playoffs was the, the, the all defense stuff coming out like that. He actually is like an elite defender. And to me, watching what happened with him over the summer where it was just like, Oh, you know what? Here, check out this Instagram video. He shot it. It's happening, you know, and it was like really like condescending in a weird way. And he brought it on himself by putting those videos up and then the three pointer in the preseason game against the Chinese team at the end of the half and the guys rushed the court like it's Leitner <laughs> just hit the shot at the spectrum. And it's just it was ridiculous. And I knew that he wasn't going to shoot. I never, ever was like, he's going to come out and take three a game. I want him to, but I knew he wasn't. But there seems to be some, like an extra level of aggression in his play right now. And an understanding that, you know, if, if he just kind of does one or two things, he's got a floater going right now. He's got a little, he's got a little bit of a turnaround post jumper happening a little bit. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's like, it's not Tim Duncan, but he's looking good. He just seems to be playing with a nobody can really stop me if I'm playing my game right now kind of attitude. You know what I liked about Giannis's shooting story 
more so than Ben's shooting story, was that we knew that Giannis was not a good three-point shooter. Yeah. But he still took one or two. Sure. Okay? Yeah. And I noticed it at the end of the year where you go, that just looks more comfortable. Mm -hmm. And he hit a couple against Houston where you go, well, now it looks even more comfortable. I agree with you. And that's the thing that you have to understand with basketball. It's so hard to go, all right, all these little things I'm working on, okay, but what am I really comfortable with? Okay, what I'm comfortable with is getting a screen and going left and going right and then finishing with my left hand because I'm really good at it and I'm huge. Right. And like, it's worked, and I just know that. Great players have to force themselves to be uncomfortable in an actual game, and I think it's a hard thing to do, and that's why I look at Giannis and go, this is why he's ascending to this special level because I expect in a couple of years, like, Giannis is going to be a really good shooter. Yes, and that's the LeBron thing of always adding one thing to your game in the offseason that you then bring out and is, like, the new the new color on the palette, but... I always thought that was... um a Nurkic thing. That wasn't <laughs> Nurkic that said every thing. summer? Add something to your game. And the problem with the Ben shooting thing is that there's also, I don't, you know, it's not, Chip England doesn't need to say, like, way in here. He just doesn't do it because it doesn't look cool. Because fucking missing does not look cool. Yeah. Like, yeah. missing really bad. Everything he else he does seems like, uh, like he has six cents. Like, his passing, I, I, I love watching his passing. He had like a, a touch pass into the post to Embiid on uh, against Atlanta that was so beautiful and was so like he saw a play happening like three full seconds before it actually happened. But he doesn't shoot because it doesn't look cool when he misses really badly. And that's what's happening. You know what's great? You know who's like the worst analytics guy on the team? <laughs> Who? It's, I mean, this is stupid to do after three games, but Thibel. Is he the... Uh, come on, no, he's not. Well, I mean, Cork Moss. He should be banned from going up to the other end of the court on offense, but <laughs> he. The love for Thibault, because he was the guy. Like they had him in in some of those big possessions defensively for, like, you know, cut the head off the snake yep. thing for us. Yeah. And then he, he got the start in the Embiid's game, I think, where he sat. The Detroit game, yeah. yeah so, um, all right. So that's, that's good. I, 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 think, I feel confident. I feel confident. Yeah. yeah. It's a weird thing, though. It's very different to go, yeah, I'm picking them. Wow, look at that team. Oh my God, that's awesome. And then I don't know. I don't want to be the guy in February going, and I feel like I'm going to be like, eh, I still don't know if I love that offense enough. But maybe you're right. Maybe that's the whole point. Is there, group, is there a Western Conference team that you feel is like the, the equivalent of that? Yeah, equivalent of the Sixers. Or is it just too competitive in the West so you can't feel that confident? No, no. I just, I don't. I, I would, I'm willing to listen to arguments to like five different teams in mm -hmm. the West, about five coming out. And, uh, nothing's really changed my mind since then. I'd like to see Utah and Conley play a little better. Yeah. Because I, I picked them to come out, but I think I picked them to come out because I just don't want to sound like everybody else say Clippers Sixers. And then I watched the Clippers and I went, eh, I should have just picked them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but what Anthony Davis did last night was another gear of, yeah. I don't know if it's just, hey, I'm really fresh and ready to go because it's the first week of the season. But you look at the free throw numbers for Anthony Davis watching that game, I go, he he every free throw was was either the defense going we give up just foul him or how did he just get that rebound grab him well i i was just was talking about this game. with Farrier for group chat but there was nice. I, you know we were talking about uh i think that the idea was like lebron and anthony davis and neither have had a teammate this like this exactly before especially davis but lebron had never had a guy like davis and they, they were going to free up so much stuff for each other and davis was getting tripled last night like davis did that while getting like like they were they were sending like Ravens defense, like everybody go to the ball on him. And it was just like, no, you guys, I'm going to go to the line then. Like I'm going to go to the line and I'm going to get 26 from the line. It was just, 
it was kind of wild. How, wait, the way he gets started now when he's like, all right, clear out. Yeah. I mean, guys, for, guys from Memphis last night were like, what are we supposed to do with this? Here's one thing that I did let creep into my head. Like they are keeping the big, they are keeping the five mm-hmm. out there with him in a way that he's always wanted. Yes. And it still feels stupid. Yeah. Because he's that game. Like, hey, by the way, you realize, Anthony, you're still bigger than most of the fives that play now. Yeah. But he doesn't want to play five. I'm like, are they going to do this dance where they keep JaVale McGee and keep Dwight Howard out there with him to make him feel better just because they're worried about re-signing him? Right. Like, I, I, like this is early, early thoughts, way too early to maybe even say out loud. But I go, they're not even... They're not like in that matchup. And then I go, okay, wait a minute. This is a matchup thing where it's like, well, Valanciunas is going to be out there. This is great. So we keep Valanciunas out there. He has to deal with McGee or Howard. And that way, Jaron Jackson's playing against Anthony Davis. And as much as we all love Jaron Jackson, he has no chance in hell against Davis. Yeah. No, yeah, but see, you're right. I mean, that's the point of the whole thing. Yeah. And I I still have, if you're Jaron Jackson, I mean, I can only imagine how it feels for him. I'm watching the game last night. And Davis, for as much as I've seen him over the years, is still the guy where I'll look up and I'll be like, who's playing the three for the Lakers right now? I'm like, oh, wait, that's Anthony Davis. Like, he'll be dribbling out on the perimeter. I'm like, wait, did somebody play him? Is a tall guy playing point guard for the Lakers right now? And I'm like, oh, fuck, that's Anthony Davis. He's playing five positions on any given possession. I'm just glad that everybody else gets to see it now because let's not kid ourselves as, as hardcore as some fans are they're just not thrown on pelican games yeah and um i've always loved him i mean I, I i just i felt like his coming out party was two years ago in those playoffs against portland and then everything goes to shit this past year so yeah. all right before we let you go the watch yeah that's your pod and me and andy greenwald yeah right right and Andy, who's developing a show, it's Briar coming. Patch. Yeah, it's Briar Patch, and it, I think it's coming on early next year on USA. Let's talk Succession, sure, because you guys really talked it up, and it's one of those things where it's like, hey, do you like this show, or do we host a podcast where now we have to say this is the greatest <laughs> show of all time? But it felt like in the rankings of recent shows, yeah, it feels like wherever you want to put it in those top three or four feels like the right slot for it. It's been the best show over the last two years, I think, for sure. What else is in the running? Fleabag, Atlanta, although Atlanta stretches back to like three years now. Uh, Mindhunter. I think there's there's been a bunch of stuff that's been really good, but part of what Andy and I talk about so much is trying to find the real stuff while there's there's so much content out there. Where on every any given week, there's two to three shows premiering. One or two of them is going to be a Netflix show or an Amazon show that you can binge. So the conversation about that show is like in hyperdrive because there's some people who are going to watch Mindhunter in two days or three days and they're going to be running around like, you know, fanatics. And then there are some people who like catch up with it over the course of a couple of weeks. So the model where we were all watching Sopranos or Breaking Bad or The Wire on Sunday night and then talking about that episode for a week has been kind of broken. So now you've got all these little pockets of people talking about different shows at different paces. And Succession was a return to that kind of 2012, 2013 feeling of, oh, everybody realized at the same time that this thing is for real. And we're all going to kind of like really savor it this time because we're not all watching Stranger Things in one night. You know, like it's like the people who are really into that show. So that was part of it. I think part of it is that that feeling like you're, you're getting that old school television feeling. And another is just like, it's incredibly hard to be that funny and that moving and that thought provoking in an hour. And it, it manages to do that 
probably once a week. Now, I think there are good succession episodes and less good succession episodes. It's not like a perfect show by any means, but it's probably the most consistently rewarding one. It, I love it because it's a it's probably a bad pitch, mm-hmm. you know, because the pitch process now it's like, well, hey, just when you think it's this, oh, it's this. And here's the other layer. And here's all these other different things like the Breaking Bad one, the way it was first explained to me when I was trying to understand how this world worked, which is incredible. Like, hey, chemistry teacher had this investment thing early on in his life. You know, went the safe route. He's in high school, unfulfilled. Wife, she's got a kid who's dealing with some medical issues. He finds out terminal cancer, lung cancer. He's never smoked a day in his life, but he's a great chemist. And he's like, fuck it, I'm cooking meth. And it's on. Right. And you go, whoa. Yeah. Like, I'm in. Succession, I don't... Okay, rich family, say it's the Murdochs, but if you want to do a little Trump thing in there too, you could do that. It's New York City. It's the 1%, but they're new money. They're not. Because that was a really cool development, I think. And like, you could just sit there and say, hey, we're rich, but you're not... You're not like Mayflower rich. Right. Logan and, is relatively self-made. Yeah. Yeah. Self-made. Right. And and then when they go and meet with the Pierce family. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. That's Pierce Who family. Who are kind of like a Graham Soulsberger kind of like old media, like right. New England. I started reading about all that stuff, yeah. the New York Times and and how that's been handed down. And it started to remind me of some of the people I went to school in Vermont with. Sure. Because you're like, you go back and you go to visit and be like, oh, I thought. I thought my family did well. Like, my <laughs> God, yeah. this is insane. Right. Um, and I don't know what the pitch is unless it's just trust in that, hey, this guy's a great creator. Adam McKay's part of it. Will Ferrell's going to go ahead and produce it. He loves the script and let's go. And in a way, I don't need, I, I, you know, I think where there's so much content, so much competition, it's like, why am I watching this, mm-hmm. right? You know, Billions is the first scene of the pilot is a woman is urinating on oh, Paul, Giamatti. Giamatti, yeah. Paul Giamatti. And you're like, okay, <laughs> this is going to be different. Yeah. And then, you know, in the weirdest way ever of trying to say like, hey, this makes sense. I I know that at the end of the season one with, with Kendall and the Chappaquiddick thing hanging over his head, you're like, oh, wow. Okay. This yeah. is going to go in a million different directions. He's got this, he's got this thing that's going to be hanging over his head and all these different buttons. But it really just comes down to kind of the, the story of each episode and, and all of those characters becoming stronger. I think it's very rare for a show to go, oh, he's an uncle. Okay. He's, he's this or whatever. And now mm-hmm. I'm like, man, I've got like 20 people I want to keep track of. And I want to keep track of them instead of those scenes where you're like, oh, it's a meadow scene. Right. It's an engaging in a way where it doesn't uh, insult the intelligence of the viewer. So there's not a lot of handholding to understand um, the financial stuff. There's not a lot of handholding to, to understand some of the, the family history stuff. I think that um, it's a very funny show and it would be, I, would, I think everybody would kind of like it. And then I think that the Kendall stuff makes it special. I think the performance of Jeremy Strong and the adding in that level of humanity to somebody that I think most people would not often see a lot of humanity in that James Murdoch type figure, the sort of idiot prince who thinks it's his to bring in the addiction stuff, to bring in um, kind of obviously like him fighting up against like the limits of his own intelligence, but still, you know, wanting something more out of his life. And that performance, which I think is really special. You I think, think he's the best? He's your favorite character, Kendall? Oh, by far. I think Kendall is what makes the show really unique and special to me. You know, I think that, that adding that that kind of heartbreak to it at the end of the season, you know, like the Bachelor Party episode and the New Mexico episode from the first season, that was fucking great. Like we would that would be incredible anyway. 
but to watch him kind of go up and down over the course of the first season and and throughout the second season, although I think to some extent he was sidelined in the second season um, and they never really fully committed to Shiv. Like I thought what they were going to do is each season would be about a different kid. So I thought they would do Kendall the first season. I thought the second season would be fully about Shiv and Shiv kind of making her play to to run the Empire. And then I thought the third season would be about Roman. And I thought that they would kind of like do it that way. But it, it they kind of at the end of the second season brought it back around to Kendall, which it was uh, which was interesting and is obviously like a very thrilling moment. Have you see, have you finished the second season yet? I haven't seen the finale yet. Okay. I'm saving it. Yeah. yeah, saving it for a, a special night. Uh, <laughs> but I, I don't feel like I, I I feel like there's elements of it that I can kind of tell, and sure. I think that's kind of the. It's it's funny how a show is like, well, hey, what's going to happen? Make something happen. Make something like what's happening, and then once you actually just sort of go, hey, you know what? I think this is going to be a good show. Yeah. Like, okay. Well, then can we now can we take our time then? Right. Can, can we can we zigzag here with Kendall? Can we can we not have to kill off somebody? I mean, Shiv and Tom are my favorite because oh, Tom yeah. reminds me of so many people that I've known. <laughs> where you go, do I hate this guy or do I love him? Yeah. And yeah. you know, I know everybody loves Cousin Greg, but I just think the delivery of his lines are are good. But Succession is weird for Kendall. If you watch too many in a row, you can get a little thrown off by his cadence, where it's just, okay, dad. Uh, oh yeah. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna grab you. But I like that water. because I feel like I'll, sometimes. Did you, did you the... not want a water? <laughs> okay, uh, that's cool. You don't have to have one. I'm gonna. Uh, I'm not gonna get one either. I think sometimes the other characters in the show are in Veep. You know, they're really like they're doing that ratatat machine gun. Everything is just an incredible burn, and it's like kind of from that Armando Iannucci school of like I don't know if you ever saw the thick of it that British show. No, but I know exactly because I was lucky enough to talk to the Jonah. Simons, yeah, yeah, Simons, and he would talk about Armando, and yeah, right. yeah, and so like that, that, that kind of like, I love the way they shoot it because on Veep, and I think on, on definitely on Succession, I think on Veep, and definitely on the thick of it, it's essentially they have multiple cameras running, but the actors never really know, like they don't have to worry about blocking, so they can just do the scene, and they they don't have to you know worry about coverage because they're getting it from multiple angles, and I uh, we did on the watch, we had an interview with um, Jay Smith Cameron who plays Jerry on succession and she was talking about how i like her character yeah. a lot and yeah. that that dinner scene when they go to see the pierces at their house in connecticut or wherever she was like we were just basically eating dinner and there were cameras roaming around filming us and she was like you never knew whether or not you were doing a scene that was going to be in the show okay so did she tell you any more about the script because i yeah. couldn't fathom like going, all right, I'm going to write this thing that's going in a million directions with like 12 or 14 different people. Well, like I, that's to get your arms Kieran around. Kieran Culkin like apparently barely learns his lines anymore. He just shows up as Roman. And then they're like, hey, you're on a boat. Hey, Ro Roman's at dinner and he's pissed off. And then they let it go. And that's how they do the scenes. And that was kind of like how I think they did Friday Night Lights for a while too, where they were like, after they sort of established what the characters were, it was like Street and Riggins are in a room. And they eventually, at the end of the scene, need to decide they're going to go to the gas station or something. But we're just going to shoot it from a couple different angles and whatever happens, happens. So with, she was saying that they basically are like all in character. There is a script with a few lines that need to be said. But essentially, like, they're like, the Pierces and the Roys are having dinner. Go. And then they just shoot it. And that's why it looks so good. Yeah. That's why that scene... When I watched that scene, I went back and was like, okay, I'm going to watch that scene over again. Actually makes me feel a little bit better that there wasn't some script that was written out. Yeah. Because it, I was like, it's, I go, I, and then I called an agent and I go, Is, can you get your hands on that script? Because I need to see what that looked like. And he was like, well, it's, no, he's like, it's going to be harder to find it 
you know, he's like, we've got a couple uh, Doctor Who scripts lying around. If you need those, I was like, no. I, I, but that that actually makes sense because that scene is just the instincts on those guys, though, man. I mean, you can sit there and say, oh, you know, acting or whatever. Yeah. No, no, no. Like to have the oldest Roy, um, what the hell is Logan? Logan, yeah, not Logan, not Connor. not Logan. The oldest son, Cameron from Ferris Bueller. Oh, uh, Alan Rock, yeah. Alan. Um, Connor. 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 Yeah. Connor. Right. Because I almost said Cameron. And then I was like, it's not Cameron Fry. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't name him. So Connor, because he was kind of a nothing character in the first season. I didn't realize, I was like, eh, whatever. You know, like yeah. you weren't looking forward to his lines or his scenes. And now you're like, oh my God, the delusional entitlement from him is so much fun to watch. And then to have him going up against, you know, a liberal family in Pierce and they're battling and he has no chance in this verbal confrontation with this guy, but he's never going to concede because <laughs> he's a Roy. Yeah. And you're like, when I'm like, if you're really generationally wealthy, you don't, you don't start showing up to stuff saying, actually, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and that was kind of like the thing that I love the most about it. Like, you're right. All these people that are this rich, I'm not talking like third car or summer house yes. i'm talking stuff they lose track of cable bills in different ski lodges <laughs> rich those people just don't as i've talked to some of those people they don't there's no like oh tell me more about i want to understand more and you're like no you don't yeah and also i think that it, it, it's a show where I, a lot of the critical debate around it when it first came out was about the likability of the characters i'd actually like to hear what you think about this because this has sort of been a, a, a larger talking conversation around television, I think in the last like year or two, where it's like, well, why would I want to spend time with these people? They're just, I hate them. You know what I mean? And and, and in some cases, I think I, I understand what people are saying, but, you know, one of the reasons why the likability never matters to me is that it's kind of obvious why they wouldn't be likable because they have no concept of consequences. And so they're living in a world in which nothing that they do will ever actually like change change any like they can't be punished for what they're doing even in the worst possible situations like what happened to kendall his dad can just make that go away easily easily so why what what does that do to someone's psyche and what does that do to somebody's personality see i love i love that you said that and and i don't i don't know how much people are interested in like the stuff i'm trying to do or whatever yeah but like, i am that's well, what i know I'm gonna, yeah. I know i know you are yeah. but like one thing i wrote it's pretty dark and it Threw a few people off. They're like, "Oh, you're you're trying to do this stuff, <laughs> right?" And uh, I was like, "Yeah." And they're like, "Well," and, and I was like, "Oh, here we go." Like, and I get it. Like, I know what I don't know, but it was very clear. It was like, okay, well, here are like two or three rules that you're not following. And what were they? Do you mind saying? One was no one. I don't like any single person in this show. I was right. like, well, who gives a shit? Right. Like, don't. How many people in reality TV do you actually like? Well, you don't watch reality TV because you like all the people. You hate all those men and women that show up for a rose. They, you think they're pathetic and they're yeah. lying about their resume. So do you think like, that the difference is that people watch reality to feel superior to the characters, but they watch you know fictional television to feel like a connection to them? They definitely watch reality to feel better about themselves. Sure. I think that's the greatest. I don't think it's a secret. I think everybody kind of knows that. Like, okay, let's let me watch all these people and be like, oh, there's, these people suck too. Yeah. You know, because I think people are hard on themselves uh, as much as everybody can sit there and read positive thinking and, you know, quote something like that. I think most people, it's just weird. I think the way we're wired, we're all a lot harder on ourselves than we should be. And so reality TV makes us feel a little bit better. Yeah. So I don't know why scripted drama, though, would change that. But that's certainly the rule. That's right. certainly the rule. Like the first thing that I was ever told, something I wrote a long, long time ago, it sucked. And the guy was like, this is, you know, what the fuck? Like, this is a bummer, man. <laughs> 
<laughs> because people lose all day. They want to come home and win. Yeah. And I also think because I'm very unproven in what I'm trying to do that, uh, you know, it's, it's like, hey, I'm going to read this and then tell, I can't tell this guy he's good at it. Right. Like, I have to tell you that you're not, you don't know what you're doing. Right. And that's definitely the case. It's some of the things I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to act like I'm so good and no one's figured me out or something like that. That's, that'd be incredibly arrogant even for me. But uh, it is really true. Like why? Okay, so I don't like any of the succession characters. All right, I wouldn't want to hang out with any of them. But I love watching their story. So who cares? Like what's that rule mean? That's yeah, my point. And I think also there's like a certain, um, relate. If even if you can't relate to the wealth or you can't relate to some of the sort of personalities, there's a lot of scenarios in succession that I find very relatable. You know, there's a lot of, uh, whether it's like the way in which betrayals sort of happen or the way in which people gossip with one another or the way in Wanting which- Wanting coke and having ketamine. Yeah, you know, like, like this closed loop system, who among <laughs> us can't, can't relate to that? But um, I find that it, it gets very true to life with the way it, in which it depicts certain situations, even if I don't drink gold-flecked vodka, you know? Yeah. But I have been in a stupid nightclub and been like, is this cool? Are we cool now? Is this like, are we doing the right thing? And they get that right, even if it's on they like do. a much higher yeah. like price point. They nail it. Yeah, they nail it. What All else right. are you watching? Uh, I just finished Mine Hunter, and it. I really, you know, I don't know if it's just because of the way it's shot, where you recognize it immediately, or like this is different. But um, you know, time period stuff can seem forced. Yeah. This one felt perfect. Yeah. Bill Tench is, is just right out of like I felt like they grabbed him from the seventies and put him in a time machine. And, and put them in the show. And I thought it was a really cool execution of a, of a neat idea. Like, hey, here's some real stuff. It's almost like an Eric Larson thing where it's, yes. let's do, you know, fictional history in a way. Yeah. And I thought that that was, that was pretty impressive to pull that off. Uh, what else? I did watch the Living With Yourself, Paul Rudd thing. Oh, you did? I did. How was yeah, it? Every time I say that to somebody, they're blown away that I read it. <laughs> I think that's what happens Watched with it. Netflix stuff, yeah. though, is because the ease of use is there. That you find people giving chances to shows that they ordinarily wouldn't be like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm going to make time to watch this thing that's on Showtime. But on Netflix somehow, it's just like, oh, all right, I'll, let's just start it. I spent the whole time going, how are they going to land this? How are they going to mm -hmm. land this? Because I think anybody that ever wants to get into TV or movies, it's, oh, I have this cool idea. All right, go ahead and pitch it. It's like, well, everybody loves dogs. So <laughs> dog divorce court. I'm like, what? I'm like, you know, these dogs gets divorced. It's like, well, then what happens? We're like, I don't just hire more writers. We'll figure it out. That's right. You know, and and when it's like, oh, you're going to do this thing where Paul Rudd is cloned. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think they did as good of a job as, as you could have of like, oh, okay. Like, I see what they did here. Yeah. And the production value of it was really good. The casting was really good. And Paul Rudd was really good in it. I don't know that I'm sitting here going, I can't wait to see the second season. And I don't know if they're going to do a second season. I thought the way they landed, I was like, I think this is probably over. Sure. But then again, you never know. And I was talking to somebody about this recently. It was like, you know, once money's involved or whatever. Um, but I was, uh, it was just different. Like sometimes I make myself read different books. I'm reading a science fiction book right now. What is it? It came out years ago, Wool. Mm. And I'm just making myself do something completely different from what I would normally do. Is but, it, do you usually, you're, you're mostly nonfiction, right? Oh, yeah. I yeah. Mean, and I used to only be fiction when yeah. I was younger. But then I was like, what am I doing? Why am I reading everybody else's stuff? Like, just start learning more stuff. <laughs> and be like, oh, Douglas Copeland has a new one. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. I'm sorry. We're getting kicked out of the studio. Oh, no. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, thanks for having me. All right. Fun podcast today. I had a lot of fun. We'll be back Friday and I have either, you know, I'm not going to tell you what I have planned because I don't know what I have planned yet, but it's going to be good. Really good. Have a great, just incredible Wednesday. Own this Wednesday. I may start doing horrible motivational outs. Yep. I think I am. Just decided it. Look out for those coming up. <laughs>